Okay, good evening, welcome. Welcome to the evening of March 22nd. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Okay, good evening. So tonight we go further with our... Exploration of the writings of Baugh, B A W, B. Allen Wallace, um, using the theme of taking the mind as the path, which, uh, you know, in retrospect, I should have like started with a little, that little part of the text that uh, refers to that statement, but we'll get there. Uh, so tonight we go into. Uh, um, the faculties of mindfulness and introspection in the cultivation of uh, shamatha and to some extent vipassana and related topics which uh, was probably the most interesting part of the reading I'm a little bit stumped personally honestly because uh, it was a lot of interesting stuff scattered throughout. And I, I'm, I'm, uh, I thought it was going to be easy to like touch on certain places, but uh, there's there's a lot of stuff to touch on. So and uh, also I'm really spaced out because uh, got back late last night and I'm dreadfully sunburned. So here goes. So first we have uh, this article, The Role of Mindfulness in the Cultivation of Quiescence. Not really fond of the term quiescence, so I'm going to uh, substitute shamatha for that wherever it occurs. Just do like a global find and replace all. Okay. And... Um, in the cultivation of shamatha, and this is from the book uh, Balancing the Mind, a Tibetan Buddhist approach to refining attention. And in this book, uh, Alan translates a uh, 
the shorter of two graded path texts by Tsongkhapa, who's the progenitor of the Galupa tradition, and is famous for writing the great stages of the path to enlightenment. And uh, he also wrote a shorter version called The Small Path, Graded Steps on the Path to Enlightenment. And in that, in the shorter one, he has a more detailed presentation of, of uh, the actual practice of shamatha and vipassana. Whereas in the longer one, um, uh, particularly for vipassana, he never seems to get around to the actual practice. So uh, Alan translates the shamatha section of that book, and uh, that book has recently come out in uh, full translation, which is really cool. Uh, it's called The Middle-length Treatise of uh, Tsongkhapa, something along those lines. Uh, but so, so you'll see that sort of explains the preoccupation with Tsongkhapa in these articles, because it's from this book where the main piece of the book is the translation of this Shamatha chapter, and I believe this was uh, his dissertation. Uh, that he made into this book. So, in the cultivation of quiescence, which is on page uh, 225, in the cultivation of shamatha, introspection has the function of monitoring the meditating awareness while the task of mindfulness is to attend without distraction to the object of meditation. So we're all, I think, very familiar at this point with the... Uh, simple definitions of these two terms, mindfulness and introspection. And um, <clears throat> on the right-hand side of this, uh, well, on page 226, rather, he says, um, Sorry, uh, on the page before, 225. So he's uh, presenting uh, the way Tsongkhapa presents the practice of uh, cultivation of shamatha is to use the visualization of a Buddha. And uh, this is a very famous practice in the Mahayana tradition that uh, comes from the Samadhi Raja Sutra the King of Samadhi Sutra, um, as well as some other sutras where the Buddha uh, recommends visualizing the body of the Tathagata as your meditative object. So uh, we have um, that that is, is given as the beginning object in a triad of objects that range that uh, include uh, first, an external uh, concrete object, which doesn't necessarily mean that the Buddha image is based on a concrete Buddha image. It could be made out of bricks or clay, but um, that it's a, a discrete object external to our mind. And the then there's a subtle object that's not uh, sort of 
um, concretized, which is the breath traditionally. And then the third object in a progression of more and more subtle objects is the mind itself. And uh, we we see these three examples. So he's first going to talk about the, the cultivation of shamatha using the visualized image of the Tathagata. And he starts off by talking about um, this very interesting fact that the object of uh, focus is not the visual image of the, the Buddha, nor is it the... Um, the sort of after image that we get from visual images, but it's the mental replication of the the body of the Buddha in our mind. We recreate the visualized image of the Buddha, and we just use the external um, version of the body of a painted or a statue of a Buddha as an external support for creating the internal visualized image. And the internal visualized image is a mental object. It's not a sense object. So we're not, um, he, he, he describes and, and uh, explains that the object in shamatha is not a sense object object is not an external object of the senses, but it's always a mental object, an object of the mental sense, the sixth of our six senses. And uh, one of the interesting aspects about this is that um, Uh, let's see, on page 226 on the right. Uh, I keep saying the right-hand side because I have a two-sided printout. Anyway, on page 226, he says, uh, and this, if this practice entailed remembering the body of the Buddha, which one has heard descriptions, or if it entailed remembering a previously perceived visual object, such as a stage statue or painting, that memory would be a conceptualization that recalls the body, the Buddha's body, by way of a generic image. So memory, like all cons, all conceptual thought, is the creation of a generic or general image of an of a some other object, where we generalize the features of some real, so-called real thing. Um, in this case, the generic image appears to the mind, but it is not ascertained. And um, there, there's a description of the difference between um, ascertaining and appearing. So, uh, appearing object is that which uh, presents itself to our mental faculties. Um, by way of the way that the, ment that the consciousnesses work. So when we look at the painting of a Buddha, we have the visual image is presented to our visual consciousness. And um, based upon that, we create a general 
idea of a Buddha that we're going to, that we could use as a support for our visualization. However, that would be a conceptual object. And what he's trying to get at, actually what I'm trying to get at, <laughs> is that the, um, what we bring to mind is the object of our meditation in in this type of meditation practice it is the first moment of the mental cognition of the uh the the um the generic image of the buddha we're we're focusing on the um Well, let me let me read let me read his presentation since I'm having such a hard time with it. He says the main object of the attention is the mental image itself, which is viewed as an actual embodiment of the Buddha. One may use a statue or painting of the Buddha, so I'm on two twenty six a few sentences in as the basis for the visualization, but the mental image is viewed as a three-dimensional, transparent, luminous image of the actual Buddha, not a two-dimensional painting and not the three-dimensional external concrete or wooden or whatever bronze statue. The mindfulness that directly apprehends this image as its main object must therefore be an instance of mental perception and not a conceptualization. So, um, um, when, when we're experiencing, um, an, an object of our mind, what happens is that uh, an image comes up into our mind, such as the Buddha, and the conceptual part is that we take that as representing some object that's not there. We, we visualize the Buddha in our mind and we take it as an, uh, sort of an emanation or a replica, replication of the actual or some actual Buddha. And when we do that, it's a conceptual process because the object refers to something that's not present. But when we take the Whatever it is that appears to our mind as the object, it's a non-conceptual object. So the mindfulness that directly apprehends this image is the main ob- as its main object must therefore be an instance of mental perception, not a conceptualization. Thus mindfulness may operate either as a conceptualization or as a mental perception, depending on whether it apprehends its main object by way of a generic image, or it apprehends a mental image as its main object. So when we're meditating on the body, uh, on a visualized object, we're not meditating on some external version, but we're purely meditating on whatever image we can bring into our mind, which is non-conceptual. So to accomplish genuine shamatha, it's necessary that mindfulness be directed upon a mental object and therefore have a direct and non-conceptual cognition of it that creates a direct non-conceptual experience of quiescence or shamatha. 
for samadhi is accomplished with mental and not sensory consciousnesses, which may be different than what we have thought in the past. Um, Henrietta, did you have something? Well, some uh, like little alarm bells went off <laughs> when I started reading this because that word ascertain, hold on, I think I have a siren going on here. That, that word ascertain, I think we encountered a long time ago in the that Galukba uh, presentation that we read several years ago, and we we got all caught up in that. I remember getting caught up in that word, ascertain. Is that peculiar to the Galukba view of things using that word, ascertain? I looked it up, ascertain, and had something to do with. Um, achieving certainty about something, you know, trying to um, determine yeah. certainty about something. Yeah, so there, there's um, there's there's a triad of three objects when we perceive an external phenomena. There's the external phenomena itself and then there's what appears to our consciousness and then there's what we ascertain so ascertain it's not uh specific to galupa though the galupas are very um uh much into this line of study more so than other schools but all four schools go through this study of what's called valid cognition or pramana which which uh entails understanding how perception happens how cognition happens and the the uh, nuances that when like for example in this example when we're meditating on the the uh, body of the buddha and let's say we have a a tonka of a buddha in front of us or a statue of the buddha in front of us the um the object of engagement is the outer object. That's what we're like trying to uh, perceive when we're looking at the the Buddha image in front of us, but not meditating on it, but looking at it. And what appears to our our mind is um, is an is uh, a replication of that image that occurs in this case in our visual sensory consciousness whereas if it was a, a sound it would obviously be in our auditory consciousness and so forth and that's called the appearing object and that's what appears internally based on the outer uh, projection into our into our conscious world uh, if we use the um, Sautrantika description of reality, which assumes that there are real external objects, which is a good basis for a beginning. And then what our what our mind actually ascertains is um, either we ascertain the appearing object, or we ascertain the um, idea of that external object. 
Kevin. Is that a generally characterized phenomena? Is that the same thing? Generally characterized versus specific. You, you said you said that, and the that the word that was unclear. Oh, uh, that what appears to uh, the conceptual mind. Well, let me come back to that, Kevin. Right. It, it all seems too complex. This triumvirate of perception, um, and um, I, I think. Maybe the problem is that um, we're discussing the um, and a statue or an image of the Buddha, which is imbued with um, all this meaning to us, the conceptual um, image of the Buddha and the statue itself, and then just the mere visualization of it. So in other words, if I, use my coffee cup instead of the Buddha. Well, my, my coffee cup gives me all these feelings about a cup of coffee and I'm, I'm uh, eager for that and I taste it. And that's the concept of, you know, coffee. What, um, but if I'm just looking at the form and the color, the shape, the reflection of the cup itself, that's what's ascertained, as it was said. Um, and, and so, I don't know, um, to my mind, the fact that the, the image of the Buddha or a statue as an image of the Buddha kind of muddies it and makes it more complex than it is. That's fair. Let's use a let's use a coffee cup or a tea cup. Some some external, uh, um, you know, uh, object that has no significance. And um, so the uh, this is getting a little bit out of uh, control. The main thing is that it it boils down to that when we when we work on our thoughts in meditation practice, the main objective in working with thoughts is to experience thoughts as the movement of the mind, as the activity of the mind. And when we look at our thoughts as the activity of the mind, it doesn't matter at all what the thought is about. Right? All thoughts are, are equal in that they're purely mental movements of the mental energy of the mental uh, capacity of our makeup and whether they're about a buddha or whether they're a cup about a cup or whether they're the first moment of um, the projection of a sense consciousness into the mental consciousness is irrelevant we're trying to to look at the luminous quality of thought so when we when we're uh, visualizing a, the cup as our meditative object or maybe you know people stare at candles and then we we try to uh, meditate upon the candle we're we're medi- ideally we need to meditate upon the uh, conscious experience of some something 
And it doesn't matter what that something is. It can be a memory. It can be a feeling. It can be a direct sense cognition of something now. But we're staring at our thoughts. Right? And some thoughts refer to lofty ideas like world peace or love. And some thoughts refer to coffee cups. And they have... There's absolutely zero difference in a thought about a coffee cup and a thought about world peace from that, from the point of view of the meditator. The meditator is focused on the, the mental stuff that, that, uh, takes different shapes. So, uh, following along Kevin's, uh, uh, hunch, which I liked, is that going through these three objects at this point is not a helpful exercise. The main thing is that we're, when we're meditating in order to achieve shamatha, we're meditating on the, the mental experience. And I didn't even say of what. It doesn't matter of what. We're just meditating on our mind, basically. And um, it, it happens to be easier to start with the mind that is thinking about something because um, it's very hard for us to meditate upon the sheer luminous knowing quality of consciousness itself. But that's what we're getting towards. So that's the third stage of shamatha, is when the object of meditation is just the clear recognize, recognizing quality of consciousness. But initially we start with an object. Um, obviously we start with the breath, and the breath has that same quality where we're focused on um, our experience in our mental world of the physical activity of breathing. Kevin, uh, you want to sum that up? Right. I, I was just thinking it's a stepping stone is all it is. The breath or an image of the cup is just a stepping stone to where we're trying to get. Uh, and that's maybe another bad analogy. The stepping stone is just a, a helping device. Yeah, so, so uh, on the bottom of page uh, 227, actually the, the first full paragraph in 227, it says, The purpose of mindfulness is first to prevent distraction away from the meditative object and then forgetfulness of that object. So first distraction and then forgetfulness is the... Uh, is what mindfulness's purpose in life is, is to prevent distraction and then prevent forgetfulness. And we have two levels of excitation and uh, subtle and coarse and also laxity that we're working on with both mindfulness and introspection, right? Um, introspection is what is aware of subtle and coarse laxity and excitation. And by being aware of it, we're able to uh, overcome it with antidotes, which is, in this case, mindfulness. 
coming back to the object. In the next paragraph, he says, Tsongkhapa emphasizes in the cultivation of shamatha that in the cultivation of shamatha, it's not enough that one's attention is clear and limpid. Clear and limpid mean it's sort of passively reflecting, reflective. Rather, one must ascertain the meditative object by apprehending it firmly with mindfulness. There has to be a um, the conscious ascertainment, meaning the um, non-conceptual experience of the object. What we're trying to do is think think about the goal of shamatha. The goal of shamatha is, is to provide a foundation for vipassana, insight into the true nature of reality. And in order for that insight to, to have an impact on our um, our experience of ourselves and our world to actually change the way we think about ourselves and the way we behave. We need to have a non-conceptual experience of the true nature of reality. A non-conceptual. So uh, shamatha therefore needs to cultivate a sustained non-conceptual experience of an object so that then we can use that non-conceptual sustained uh, state of mind to focus on emptiness or in the in the uh, Theravadan tradition the three marks impermanent suffering and essencelessness or egolessness Ram uh, just a question is is that why we have gurus? Like so, when we're bringing when we're bringing visualization to mind, if we have an actual guru that we know the face, we don't have to conjure it; it just shows up. Well, it's still you're still quibbling over different objects, right? Uh, but I'm saying, well, what I'm saying, of course, at the beginning of everything, there's a little push. There's a little artificial push. But if you're not, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not, once you've done the push, if you're not actually composing and creating, you're just letting that, that thing happen. I mean, it sort of seems to me like that's like, like, that's like, like a stepping stone. It is. It's a helpful stepping stone. Yes. Yes. So he says one must ascertain the meditative object by apprehending it fully with mindfulness. Otherwise, the full potency of attentional clarity cannot arise and subtle laxity is not dispersed and one's samadhi remains impaired. Um, Continuing a few sentences ahead in the next page, which is 228, it says, When quiescence or shamatas fully, finally achieve the entire continuum of one's attention, is focused single-pointedly, non-conceptually, and internally in the very uh, quiescence of the mind. And the attention is withdrawn fully from the physical senses. And so this issue of whether of uh, first the mind, the object of meditation being a non-conceptual experience is very important, and he'll go through that in different traditions. And then this this statement of whether the senses are withdrawn or not in shamatha and complete shamatha is another issue that uh, differs among traditions, and we'll talk about. And uh, there's a couple of more issues that he's going to go through different traditions, how they view it as well, that we'll come to. Let's see. Um, 
And at that point, if occasional thoughts do arise, even about the meditative object, the meditator is counseled not to follow after them, but to be without mindfulness and without mental engagement. Um, so, um, no matter what thought arises, we're no longer paying attention to them. Thus, one now disengages not only from extraneous thoughts and so forth, but even from the meditative object. So in the culmination of shamatha, one is no longer focused on the object, but is focused purely on the state of mind, the quiescence of the mind, the nature of one's mind. For the first time in this training, one does not attempt to, attempt to fix the attention upon a familiar object. One's consciousness is now left in an absence of appearances, an experience that Asanga says is subtle and difficult to realize. So this is a sort of very different presentation of the culmination of shamatha than maybe we're used to. The absence of the object. Um, Kamala Shila, on whom Sankaba relies heavily, blah, 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 points out that when something is perceived by being presented to cognition, it, it may then be removed through mental non-engagement. So even though something is appearing to our sense consciousnesses, it, we, um, if we don't engage it, we don't perceive it. You know, so like, uh, we often do this when our parents, when we're children and our parents speak to us and they're like right in front of us and they're talking, but you're on your, your children are on their cell phone and they literally, the, the parents like is not there at all. I know you've all, you've experienced that, right? <laughs> you've shifted your attention to something totally different. And so the other object is like not there at all. So genuine mental non-engagement, however, is not a mere absence of mental engagement. So it doesn't mean that in shamatha we go into a blank void. It's just we're not engaged on any object or any thought. We're engaged in, in the mind itself. Rather, it is a non-objectification that occurs only due to the analytical examination which penetrates beyond the sign of phenomena. Which is a, a convoluted way of saying that uh, we're focused on this, the nature of the mind. The mind engages with signs whenever a phenomenon is apprehended as indicating something else. So signs are characteristics of phenomena, and that's how we perceive phenomena. Thus, mentally grasping onto signs corresponds closely to the process of cognizing an object as something that makes sense within one's conceptual framework, such as a cup or a Buddha. The mental non-engagement upon the achievement of shamatha is therefore not of the same degree that occurs due to the cultivation of insight. For in shamatha, the mind is simply withdrawn from sensory objects and its own meditative object without gaining insight into their true nature. It's just withdrawn into its own state, bringing the mind into its own place into its own nature into its own state is the culmination of shamatha practice so there's ascertainment of the nature of the mind but there's not ascertainment of anything else including the object 
and it has to be stable and clear and a knowing quality. Um, the absence of phenomenal signs, you know, things like colors, shapes, sounds, and so forth, is comprehended only by means of the analytical investigation that is characteristic of the cultivation of insight. And this is not pursued in the training and quiescence. So here he's talking about um, the absence of phenomenal signs is shama is shunyata. So that's not what uh, shamata is getting at. Shamata is is uh, withdrawing from all objects other than the nature of the mind and uh, focusing the mind on the mind. Tsongkhapa, drawing on a sangha, states that upon achieving shamatha, the mind disengages from the signs of sensory objects, and only the aspects of the sheer awareness, clarity, and vivid joy of the mind appear. And these are the three characteristics of the true nature of the mind. Now, when I say the true nature, I don't mean the absolute or ultimate nature of the mind. Um, because within Alan Wallace land, he's saying that primordial wisdom is not mind. So enlightened cognition, enlightened st the enlightened state is not mind, it's not consciousness. So when he says the natural state of the mind, he means the fundamental state of samsaric mind, which is the Alaya Vijnana. And it has those three qualities of joy, non-conceptuality, and uh, clarity, knowing quality. Thus joy is said to arise from the very nature of con consciousness once it's free of the afflictions of laxity and excitation and it disengages from all sensory and mental appearances. In this state, he says, any ideation that arises is neither sustained nor does it proliferate. Rather, it vanishes of its own accord like bubbles emerging from water. One has no sense of one's own body and it seems as if one's mind has become indivisible with space. So this is the sort of traditional description of the culmination of shamatha uh, before even getting into absorption practice. Tsongkhapa characterizes this as a state of joy, clarity, and non-conceptuality without mindfulness or mental engagement. There's no longer uh, mindfulness because there's no focus for mindfulness. There's nothing being remembered. And, non, um, and there's no mental engagement. He emphasizes that such a meditative state sometimes said to be intellectually uncontrived and without grasping does not necessarily imply realization of ultimate truth. So what he's getting at is there's often a conflation between this experience of shamatha, which is resting in the true nature of mind, and a recognition of that true nature of mind, uh, but not the, the recognition of the ultimate nature of that mind as being empty. It's just the recognition of the, of the qualities, the phenomenal qualities of that mind. 
and then he branches into a comparison and of uh, of that presentation of shamatha with shamatha in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions. While Tsongkhwa does not elaborate here on the nature of um, meditation that's intellectually uncontrived and without grasping this is a major theme in the Mahamudra Atta Yoga traditions of Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, Karma Chakme, a major lineage holder in both traditions addresses this point. By the power of stopping ideation and familiarizing oneself with that, uh, presumably um, the stoppage, familiarizing oneself with the state of having stopped ideation, one remains in a state of brilliant clarity without scattering. That must occur first, but that is not the point of Mahamudra and Ati Yoga, for this is common to the view of, and here's the, the, the uh, traditional uh, scapegoat or straw man, uh, the person who has um, presents a, a, a tradition that focuses on non-conceptuality as the culmination of the path, a gentleman named Huang Shang. So, uh, this is the common, this is common to the view of the Chinese Hua Shang. It's common experience in the four meditative stabilizations, the absorptions of the, which is, which uh, are found in non-Buddhist as well as Buddhist traditions. And the cessation of shravakas is this um, culmination of shamatha is common in all of these different traditions, but it's not enlightenment. It's not Vipassana. Why is that not Mahamudra and Ati Yogi? Because it is not an uncontrived state. It's a, it's a contrived state of focusing on the nature of the mind, but a contrived one. And, and because there is the grasping of thinking, attention is being sustained on the nature of the mind. So, uh, skipping a paragraph, I'm on 231. On the other hand, it does seem clear from Tsongkhapa's discussion based on a Shravaka's, sorry, a Sangha's text called the Shravaka Bhumi. And we know what Shravakas are and we know what Bhumis are. So it's the presentation of the, of the uh, level of achievement of the Shravakas. Uh, by a Sangha in a famous text of his called the Yogacari Bhumi, which is a huge compilation. And in this text, Shravaka Bhumi is where he really presents the, terror, the what we would call the Hinayana uh, system of meditation, the obstacles and antidotes and the stages and the powers and so forth. Sankhavad's discussion based on a song of Shravaka Bhumi, that he believes the cultivation of shamatha to culminate in an experiential realization of the nature of consciousness. So it does seem clear from Tsongkhapa's discussion that he believes that shamatha culminates in a realization of the nature of consciousness. This assertion need not be interpreted as contradicting the premise accepted by Tsongkhapa that the mind cannot apprehend itself. So when he says an experiential realization of the nature of consciousness, he's talking about a direct experience of the conventional nature of uh, samsaric 
consciousness, alia vijnana, state of being. And um, then the, the problem comes up, The uh, uh, somebody may object, well, you're saying then that the mind is observing itself, and that's impossible in the prasangika version of uh, Madhyamaka. There's two versions of Madhyamaka, and they both hold that um, self-reflexive awareness is impossible. The mind cannot perceive itself. So he goes on to explain that we're, we're perceiving the, the mind of a moment before, during the development of shamatha introspection has the function of um, monitoring the meditator's consciousness, particularly regarding the occurrence of the mental processes of laxity and excitation. Such metacognition is a form of recollective awareness that cognizes previous moments of consciousness. Likewise, once quiescence or shamatha is accomplished and one's meditative object dissolves, in the absence of appearances, the continuum of one's attention may attend to previous moments of consciousness. Due to the homogeneity of this mental continuum, the experiential effect would be that of the mind apprehending itself. So um, there's there's also in the in the tradition there's these different views of whether the mind can apprehend itself actually. Um, and Sankapa's uh, uh, a uh, Prasangika of the type that believes it, the mind cannot apprehend itself. So it's uh, and when when I say mind, I mean the samsaric mind. And so he's saying it's perceiving the moment before. So then dropping down to the bottom of the page, if it's possible to attend to previous moments of consciousness upon achieving shamatha, and if it's possible for introspection to monitor the flow of consciousness throughout the training in shamatha, we may well ask, might it then be possible to develop shamatha with the mind as one's object? instead of a mental image. Sankhva does in fact acknowledge this, and he briefly mentions ways in which this might be carried out. <clears throat> One method he cites is to cultivate shamatha by maintaining the attention free of ideation, by maintaining the resolve, I shall settle the mind without thinking about any object, which is of a reference to a very famous line in the Diamond Sutra where the Buddha says, give rise to a mind that abides nowhere, a state of mind or a thought. That very absence of thought becomes the object of mindfulness, which has the function of preventing the attention from becoming scattered or distracted. And Sankhapa asserts that here too mindfulness must ascertain that object and must directly cognize that non, uh, non-distracted um, experience uh, uh, that non-distracted mind. Thus, Sankhava takes non-conceptuality, one of the three characteristics of the mind that is discerned upon accomplishing shamatha, as the primary object for the cultivation of shamatha. The implication is that if shamatha is achieved by focusing on this object, the other two characteristics, namely clarity and joy, will be realized as a matter of course. And he quotes the Samdhinirmochana Sutra as um, uh, supporting this with this famous quote. 
in the in the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra Maitreya, the Bodhisattva Maitreya, in chapter eight, asks the Buddha all about Shamatha Vipassana, and we've gone through this text in a number of courses. So um, Maitreya says, "Lord Buddha, how many objects of Shamatha are there? How many objects?" And the Buddha replies, "There is one." You know, so we saw a reference in uh, last class to a list of 40 objects, and then readings for today's class, we saw the 10 emblems, and we have, you know, a Tathagata and, uh, and, uh, and the breath as objects for meditation, but actual objects of shamatha is all of, all shamatha resolves in one object, which is, um, it has the form of no ideation. So it's the mind that's without ideation. How is one to cultivate this when with constant mental engagement, continually engaging with the mind itself, there is samadhi uninterrupted by laxity and excitation. That is flawless mental engagement with the mind itself. So the mind enters into and stays or settles into itself with no other object other than itself in the achievement of shamatha. Although this is not a technique strongly emphasized by the Galukpas, it figures prominently in Mahamudra and Atiyoga, and he quotes the Indian Mahasiddha Maitripa, who was one of the grandfathers of the Mahamudra, uh, tradition and the Kagyu and uh, and Galupa lineages, he calls this the ultimate que- uh, shamatha of maintaining the attention upon non-conceptuality. So I said there's a triad of objects going from a concrete object to a, uh, an internal or uh, uh, sorry, uh, non-concrete objects such as the breath and then to the actual nature of mind itself. And so this is what Maitripa is referring to, uh, maintaining the attention upon non-conceptuality itself. Vacantly direct your eyes into the intervening vacuity. And so the idea is that um, all <clears throat> practices of shamatha, using whatever object, are meant to bring one along this uh this trajectory of going from focusing on one's idea of the act, of the object to one's experience of the mind. All types of shamatha are meant to bring one along that trajectory. And so um, it's easy to start with an object, like a concrete object, because it gives you an easy way of distinguishing whether you're distracted or not. And therefore use mindfulness to bring your mind back into one place. Whereas if you start with the object of the mind from day one, it's really hard to do that. It's basically impossible for normal human beings like us to do that. So we all have to train with a, a supposed object, either external or internal, visual or whatever, and gradually train the mind to stay in its own place. And along that way, the the, uh, focus upon the externality of an object dissolves and the mind is left focused on itself. Direct your eyes into the intervening vacuity, the space in front of oneself. And um, 
you may you might think about where you place your gaze when you meditate um, sometimes when we give instruction we say you direct your gaze downward like four to six feet on the floor in front of you if you're on a cushion or if you're in a chair like six to eight feet and there's this implication that oh my focal point is the floor and that's a mistake your focal point is not the floor the focal point of your gaze is the, the intervening space between you and some some solid material object so as you meditate you 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 should be trying to gradually train yourself to experience a gaze that is actually looking at space the absence of object in front of you between you and the next intervening material object and that can either be like you know if the wall is 10 feet away it can be you know anywhere from one to nine feet away from you but try bringing it close in and try looking at the space directly in front of your face see that uh, the three conceptualizations of, t of the past present and future good and bad blah 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 um, all the causes assembly and dispersal of thoughts of the three times are completely cut off bring no thoughts to mind let the mind like a cloudless sky be clear empty and evenly devoid of grasping and settle it in utter vacuity by doing by so doing there rises the shamato joy clarity not conceptual that's like you know just cutting to the chase of what shamata is Tsongkhapa characterizes the achievement of shamata as a state of non-conceptuality in which it seems as if one's mind has become indivisible with space so it's a non-conceptual experience of the, the nature of mind the above techniques for developing shamatha take those two uh, resultant qualities of um, space and the the uh, either the three qualities of joy non-conceptuality and clarity or knowing are taken as the path we focus on them so let's see says so take those two resulting qualities of them as the method for achieving the same result and that's the Vajrayana technique is that we take the resulting experience as the path it's very difficult to do though upon achieving quiescence or shamatha one realizes the aspects of the sheer awareness and clarity of experience awareness in this case refers to the knowing quality of the mind and any thoughts that arise vanish of their own accord like bubbles emerging from water because one is dwelling consistently and stably upon the sheer uh, awareness or knowing quality and clarity um, uh, he acknowledges these aspects of mind awareness and clarity can be taken as one's meditative object instead of the buddha and thus both these techniques are analogous to the vajrayana theme of transforming the result into the path okay um on the next page 235 according to prasangika madhyamaka 
which is the type of Madhyamaka that has no assertions at all, uh, but emphasizes letting go of all um, ways of understanding or experiencing or explaining reality. According to the Prasanka Madhyamaka view advocated by Tsongkhapa, all types of consciousness are non-conceptual with respect to their own appearances. So they are said to be imbued with clarity regarding those appearances. So this is what I was trying to get at before, where the the um, all states of mind are non-conceptual in terms of what the mind is uh, experiencing, i.e. the mental uh, energy the movement of mind. They're not not conceptual in terms of what the thought refers to, such as coffee cups or Buddhas or world peace. Um, in this sense, one of the defining characteristics of consciousness is said to be clarity. We're always having this experience of clarity and sheer awareness and non-conceptuality in terms of what the mind is experiencing, not what um, that experience refers to in terms of like thinking about good and bad and past, present, and future. Hold on one second. Uh, because consciousness is always experientially aware of those appearances, its second defining characteristic is said to be awareness or knowing. Sorry. Okay, um, Hen Henrietta. But that's different from emptiness. That's correct. Okay. That's correct, which we'll come to. And I just have a question about all these asterisks. Mm -hmm. what, are yeah. they? what? Why are they there? I think they're footnotes. Really? I think they're numbers. I don't see any asterisks. I see some asteroids. Oh, you know what? I'm looking at the um, your version that's not in the book form. It's, uh, you know, that you sent us individually. And there are these asterisks that appear by certain words. Anyway, it doesn't matter. There are footnotes, but but the asterisks are not footnoted. I see. Yeah, it's okay. So. Okay, so let's see. Um, so it goes on at some length about these nuances and how they are viewed differently. I was also kind of intrigued about this um, this idea of recollection. You know that that you're not really you're you're noticing the the thought as it passes. Uh, you're noticing it not in real time. <laughs> yes, and this is the difference between the traditions. So, in our tradition being the Kagyu Nyingma, uh, for most of us or many of us. Um, and and uh, the Mahamudra Mahaati tradition views that mind is can be reflexive, can be aware of itself in the present moment. But Prasanga Madhyamakas deny the reflexive capability of mind, and so they assert that we're viewing the previous moment of mind, and if we keep doing that in a continuous manner then it then it it gains a strength and momentum that um 
makes it seem like we're currently focused on the current state of mind. But actually, it's a fraction. We're focused on the, the mind of, of the fraction before, which is also a logical impossibility of uh, how can you be focused on the, the mind of the moment before when that doesn't exist at the current time. So it has its problems also. Um, let's see. On page 237, in the middle of that first full paragraph, so the paragraph begins with Lerablinkpa, and in the middle it says, Leitzonkaba Lerablinkpa makes no claim that this technique alone results in a realization of ultimate truth, which is what Henrietta just emphasized, is that we're not experiencing the ultimate nature of reality or the mind, we're just directly cognizing its relative nature as having those three qualities. He does claim, however, that when this method of maintaining the mind in its natural state is followed precisely, the afflictions of one's own mind stream will be inhibited, which is the traditional um, function of shamatha, and one will gain the autonomy of not succumbing to them, and one's mind will constantly be calm and dispassionate, which in all tr Buddhist traditions paves the way then for the cultivation of Vipassana, which is the traditional way of presenting shamatha and Vipassana is that one has to uh, com basically completely inactivate the kleshas through shamatha in order then to pursue Vipassana. And let's see, he goes through uh, this Galupa master talking about Mah the Galupa version of Mahamudra and how comparable that is. And let's skip ahead to 239. <clears throat> I'm sorry, 240. So the first full paragraph, according to the Madhyamaka, Mahamudra, and Atiyoga traditions alike, in order to realize ultimate truth in a manner that is intellectually unstructured and free of conceptual grasping, one must actively, discursively, discursively. So this is Alan's version, who is coming from the Galupa background. One must actively and discursively seek out the ultimate nature of all phenomena by means of insight practices. This is the traditional approach to insight, is that it's a discursive practice in both the Theravada and Mahayana traditions, as well as the traditional Mahamudra and Mahati tradition. There's the discursive activity of looking at the nature of the mind. Where is the mind? Does it have a location? Does it have a shape? Does it have a color? Does it have a texture? And so forth, which is a discursive activity. <clears throat> Once one has gained insight by means of such conceptual analysis, one sustains that insight in a manner that closely parallels the above technique of settling the mind in its natural state. <clears throat> so the idea in the traditional version of shamatha and vipassana is that we achieve a very strong state of uh, 
um, mental stability through shamatha practice, and then we bring that mental stability, strength, and clarity to bear on our understanding of the true nature of reality developed from insight meditation. So we're we're focusing the mind on the quality of the true nature of reality as being uh, emptiness. One sustains that inside in a manner that closely parallels the above technique of settling mind's natural state, but now due to the power of insight, it is said that one may actually transcend all conceptual constructs, dispense with all grasping, and experientially realize ultimate truth. For that to occur, however, all three of the maintained uh, traditions, and his the three are Madhyamaka, Mahamudra, Mahaati, maintain that the attentional stability and clarity gained by the training in, in shamatha is indispensable. All these traditions also acknowledge the value of the whole range of shamatha practices discussed above. Among them, there's a distinctive flavor, however, in the practice which Tsongkhapa describes as focusing on the sheer awareness and the sheer clarity of experience in Maitripa's technique of focusing the attention on, conceptualiz on conceptualization and Lehrblinka's method for maintaining the mind in its natural state. So he's comparing these three traditions of Tsongkhapa representing the Madhyamaka tradition, saying focus on sheer awareness and a clear, sheer clarity of experience. Maitripa's technique of focusing the attention on, I don't know, I thought that was a typo. It says conceptualization, I thought it should be non-conceptualization. But uh, Lerblinkpa's method for maintaining the mind in its natural state. In such practice, one does suppress, does not suppress or counteract any mental process, thought, desire, or emotions. Even if laxity or excitation occur, they're not to be counteracted with antidotes, as in the technique explained by Tsongkhapa. So he's talking about the Mahamudra Mahati tradition of simply just being. Uh, vividly present with whatever's going on in the mind and not um, not messing with the mind, not changing, engaging the mind in any way to fix it or tamper with it. Rather, one simply observes the clear and cognizant nature of these and all other mental events, letting them arise and vanish like bubbles. So in effect, one tries to use the resultant state of shamatha as the means for achieving shamatha, and particularly according to Mahamudra Mahati, that state of non-conceptual clear awareness as free as possible of conceptual grasping is the natural state of mind, meaning the samsaric state of mind of the Aliyavishnana. Um, thus, rather than trying to create that state by applying intellectually contrived techniques such as focusing on a mental image one lets the mind settle in its own nature so that those qualities emerge spontaneously in terms of the effect of this technique on the mental process themselves this turns out to allow for a kind of free association of ideas desires and emotions because one is not intentionally suppressing evaluating judging or distracting any thoughts and so on that appear to the mind because the attention is maintained within the field of mental phenomena without being distracted by physical objects or I'm adding any sort of focal object of meditation. 
a wide variety of latent predispositions are brought into consciousness. You may have experienced this when you meditate. And when we do our type of meditation that does not have a, f a fixed object, continuous object, if you do Trungpa Rinpoche's version of letting go of the breath on the in-breath, and either way, if, uh, if you have both in and out breath, you probably do not have an emphasis on holding the object as intently as uh, Tsongkhapa is. And that... All of that provokes all of this mental stuff to come up into our mind stream while we're meditating. These may include all memories, long forgotten fears, resentments, repressed desires, fantasies, so on. As in the dream state, latent propensities are catalyzed so that unconscious processes, including those that influence one's behavior, health, and so forth, are made conscious. If one can simply take note of these without grasping onto them or without judging them, but simply observing their clear cognizant nature, one can see that they dissolve of their own accord and they cannot harm one's mind in the process. This is regarded as the most direct, uncontrived means to realize the nature of consciousness and to be to bringing elements from the unconscious into the clear light of awareness. We're processing our psychological baggage, is how Trungpa would call this. This practice of cultivating shamatha by attending to thoughts, however, is not without its own pitfalls. As one has no fixed object in which to focus the intention, one may easily succumb to mere daydreaming. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> uh, drifting from one thought to another without attentional stability or clarity. Instead of leading to the actual achievement of shamatha, such pseudo-meditation results merely in mental lassitude. Moreover, the method of focusing on non-conceptuality as one's object of shamatha, if not followed properly, may result in blank-mindedness, in which the mind apprehends nothing and is devoid of clarity. Although there may be some degree of attentional stability in this trance-like state, um, Tsongkhapa cautions that rather than leading to the achievement of shamatha, such sustained practice actually impairs one's intelligence. So you're making yourself dumber if you're just sitting there, just spacing out and dozing, like letting the mind wander all all the time. You're actually making yourself dumber, just like your parents say. Why are you sitting there doing nothing? You could be actively cultivating your mind. Oh, let's see. So, skipping in the next paragraph, like in the middle, he says, in short, although the methods of tending to non-conceptuality and to conceptualization may at first glance appear easier, they're actually more subtle and challenging than methods using visualization, which is why we all start with the breath. Beyond quiescence, page 243, the central aim of M&M and M&A is the conceptually unmediated realization of a state of awareness that transcends all conceptual constructs of subject and object, personal impersonal unity, multiplicity, samsara, nirvana, existence, and non-existence. It's a nice description of enlightened mind. This awareness is said to be the primordial ground of the whole of samsara and nirvana. Okay, okay, so it's... Uh, um, this is the ground below the Aliya Vishnana. This is the Aliya, the fundamental ground. And it is identified as the Dharmakaya, the Buddha nature, essence of Tathagata, and mind itself. 
while it's utterly transcendent and never contaminated by mental afflictions or obscurations, it is constantly immutably present in every moment of everyone's experience. Unproduced and unconditioned by one's body or environment, it is this awareness that's the basis, the path, and the fruit of Vajrayana practice, Mahamudra Yoga. And he goes on to talking about uh, Herbert Gunther, who he doesn't seem to like very much. Do you, do you get that feeling? <laughs> okay, uh, let's let's skip that part. Let's see. Anyway, let's go to the next one. Then the the one on introspection. Okay, role of introspection. He goes through the traditional stuff. Uh, Let's see. Uh, He he quotes this uh, definition from the Samdhi Nirmochana, dwelling in solitude, perfectly directing the mind inwards when it tends just to the phenomena as they have been brought into consideration. And that attentive mind is mental engagement, for it is continuously mentally engaged inwards. That state in which one is so directed and remains repeatedly, in which physical pliancy and mental pliancy have arisen, is called shock. Shamata. So that's the Samdhita Mochana Sutra's description of Shamata by the Buddha. But let's skip to um, on, the, on uh, page 250, the second full paragraph. Uh, actually, the first one, he says the training in Shamata hinges upon the development and employment of two processes, mindfulness and introspection. Both of these are directed towards mental phenomena. The distinction between them is mindfulness is focused on the meditative object, while introspection monitors the awareness of that object. Next paragraph, Sankabat cites Shantideva, who, by the way, is the author of the Bodhicharvatara, the way of the Bodhisattva, um, who gives a summation of introspection as a chapter on introspection as the repeated investigation of the state of one's body and mind. Although introspection is not included among the 51 mental processes listed in the Sangha's Abhidharma Samachaya. And so this is an interesting point. Mindfulness is listed in that 51, but to, to make such a big deal out of a fact, a mental factor that's not in that list of 51 is a little bit odd. So he has to explain that. Anyway, it's not a big deal. Uh, but he says the lack of, of introspection is in the list. So therefore he feels okay. Phew. Um, on page 251, the last and second and last full paragraph. Once, uh, uh, let's see, actually the first full paragraph, introspection plays an important part, soteriological role, in Buddhist practice, particularly crucial for the training in shamatha, which has the function of recognizing whether the attention has succumbed 
to either laxity or excitation. In the next paragraph, once the attention has been sufficiently trained so that it can remain unwaveringly on the meditative object for a sustained period of time, laxity becomes a formidable problem. Isn't this a cool non sequitur? It says, once attention has been sufficiently trained so that it can remain unwaveringly on the meditative object, that leads to a problem. Laxity becomes a problem. So there's like this, this uh, sand trap in the golf course of meditation. You know, it's like you make it right next to the green. Your ball, you know, you make a beautiful drive and it goes right up next to the green. And then it's in a sand trap. You know, so right after we think we've made progress in meditation, we get stuck in this in, in this field of subtle laxity. The mental process occurs. Earlier, I'm sorry. Earlier, yes. earlier it said earlier it said that the clarity and uh, and um, the the three qualities those were a problem. Yeah, he makes problems. They see problems everywhere, don't they? Some people. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the clarity and the joy is a problem. I mean, that I found that very unusual. <laughs> oh, I, I skipped that. You're right. Um, it it's uh, it, it's the problem is that people get attached to the joy, the clarity, and the sheer recognition or awareness quality of the mind. We experience that in our meditation as we progress. We have little glimpses or experiences of of those three qualities. And we're like, whoa, that was great. And we get all fixated on them. So those are known as uh, nyam or temporary experiences that Rinpoche advises one not to get fixated on. And so they're viewed as an obstacle or a problem because everybody gets fixated on them because after going through the barrage of the waterfall of thoughts, they're great, you know, the, the having some sense of positive well-being and like a calm, clear mind. It's like, what a relief, right? How do you spell relief? So they're a problem because people get fixated on them. Yeah, so like, so... Yeah, it's like, in a, in a sense, it's a mirage of what, what we're actually trying to get. It is, it is. One has to keep going. So, and what they say is that some people just get stuck there, and they just end up spending their whole life or path uh, focusing on uh, the Alevishnana and uh, being in that world. And, and that's what the form, that's what the absorption states are. They're refined experiences of Alevishnana as well as the formless states, absorptions. And one has to break through the Ali Vishnana to experience enlightenment. So it's not all, it's, it's, not, a, it's not really all, all, you know, puppies and cupcakes and Swiss picnic. It's, it's, there's something edgy going on here. Yeah, it's a long and difficult path, which is why, I've asked you all to bring uh, your lunch and a change of underwear. Do you remember that cartoon from the New Yorker? Ah, <laughs> uh, let's see. The interesting part came in the section called Beyond Something. Ah, uh, let's see. Okay, 
255. Quiescence in Theravada Buddhism. So he goes through this whole presentation of Shamatha and Theravada Buddhism, um, focusing on uh, the presentation by two gentlemen. Let's see. All right. Well, my, mine ends at 2.54. Oh, that was a problem. Oh, that's right. I cut this part out. That's good. Then we're done. Yeah, he goes into this whole long thing about uh, Shamatha in uh, Theravada which I skipped. If anybody's interested, I can send it to them. Uh, but So we don't have the achievement of quiescence. Page 262, did you guys get that? It ends it right there. Yeah, that's a good question. I'll have to check on that. That should be in there. I will check on that. It's probably later on. So let's go back and let's finish up uh, this section on introspection. So we uh, we got to the sand trap on the bottom of 251. This mental process occurs when the attention becomes slack and the meditative object is not apprehended with clarity and forcefulness. And it's uh, related to delusion, the mental affliction. There's a footnote, um, at least on my copy. I don't know. I, I'm looking at your individual handouts, not at the source book. In the individual handouts, I did a two pages per sheet. Oh no, I did one page. No, you did. Sheet, yeah. One, yeah. And, and the nice, source book I did too. Yeah. Uh, there's a nice little footnote that says attachment is a mental affliction that by its very nature superimposes the quality of attractiveness upon its object and yearns for it. So that kind of describes the whole thing right there. Yeah, that's a nice description of attachment. Yeah, the footnotes were great, and there's all this cool stuff going on in the footnotes. Oh, let's see. So, 252, in the cultivation of shamatha, mindfulness of the meditative object needs to be maintained cons constantly, whereas introspection is only intermittently needed to monitor the functioning of the meditative awareness. While a conceptual understanding of laxity and excitation is relatively easy to acquire, it's not enough merely to have an understanding of laxity and excitation when meditating. You must be able to generate introspection that correctly recognizes whether or not laxity and excitation have arisen. Until such introspection has arisen, one cannot be certain that one's meditation is free of laxity and excitation. And as long as the mind is still prone to these afflictions, quiescence or shamatha has not been achieved. And 
Uh, let's see, at the end of this next paragraph, um, sorry, never mind, let's skip to the next page, 253. In terms of this theory, I surmise that the degree of attentional stability increases in relation to the proportion of ascertaining moments of cognition of the intended object. It just goes into a very convoluted way of saying that the, the longer that you're focused on one object, the greater the degree of clarity and stability, which is pretty obvious. The next paragraph in the training in Shamatha, the stated function of introspection is to monitor the awareness of the meditator and detect, in particular, any occurrence of either laxity or excitation. And let's see. He talks about their features, laxity and excitation, and then says it is evident that according to Tsongkhapa, introspection may perceive an immediately prior occurrence of laxity and excitation in relation to their intentional objects. Such perception is the clear case of participatory observation. That is, the way the perception of any mental process by introspection Sorry, the very, the very perception of any mental process by introspection. Um, this is Schrodinger's cat, isn't it? Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, by 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 using introspection to monitor their mind, it impacts the mind, which is obviously the. The objective is, well, there's two objectives. The stated objective is to bring the mind back into mindfulness, focused on the object, but it also has a way of dispersing the laxity and the excitation by bringing awareness to them, to it. And we all know that when, when we have discursive thoughts, when we bring our awareness to them, they don't like that. They go away. Right? Um, this is uh, particularly evident in the case of excitation. When you bring awareness to it, it settles down. Uh, so on the top of page 254, it's uh Silver Hammer. I think that's how the Beatles song goes, right? Tsongkhapa's Silver Hammer comes down on the subtlety of the introspective perception of laxity and excitation by saying, moreover, by gradually developing powerful introspection, not only must you be able to introduce introspection that recognizes <laughs> you just got that uh, <laughs> that uh, um, it recognizes laxity and excitation as soon as they have arisen. You must generate introspection that is aware of them when they're on the verge of occurring. Isn't, isn't, um, isn't introspection uh, alertness called alertness in others? It is, it it's is. A much, it's a much easier way because you get to alertness through the meditation. Introspection seems to be like a different process while alertness just comes about, right? It's such a better translation. I totally agree with you. Alertness. Introspection has this whole like discursive intellectual that implication you have to, stop to something, it. But in alertness, it just generates itself and brings you back either to mindfulness and to, you know, or maybe 
you know, yeah. maybe, yeah. Yeah, I'm totally with you. The 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 I think the reason why Alan likes introspection is because <clears throat> the faculty is directed inward. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> this faculty is directed inward, so it's introspect. It's you know technic the, the literal meaning is to look inward. Whereas alertness can be like just to you know, look anywhere with a uh, clear and uh, vibrant attention. Uh, Ronald. Yeah, it seems to have like a vipassana kind of a. a oh, way it's interesting, it. doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so Trump Rinpoche, uh in my humble opinion, a lot of times when he's talking about vipassana, he's talking about this this factor, this mental factor, which in Sanskrit is samprajanya, and there's even. Uh, a seminar that he gave called Meditation, the Way of the Buddha, and the fourth talk is on Vipassana. And in that talk, he he describes mindfulness, and he gives the Tibetan and Sanskrit and Pali, and then he describes uh, awareness, and he gives Samprajanya, and in Tibetan, Sheshin. And then, like, one paragraph later, he uses awareness the English word to translate to mean Vipassana. So he basically is um, bringing those two things together, the uh, that um, alertness or introspection and Vipassana, because it's, yeah, it's basically awareness. a continuum. Yeah, aw- awareness is Vipassana, but I'm saying introspection is more like Theravadan Vipassana, that practice. Of of you know mindfulness of the body, there's a there's a you know there's a constant labeling going on, and, and the eyes are closed, and you're in there, you're introspecting yourself, you know. That 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 that's how I'm getting it. I mean, why why it's being used here? I don't know. Maybe I'm totally off base, but okay. But aware, awareness is definitely vipassana. But the Pasana, the, the Theravadan practice, you know, seems to be more like introspection. So let me ask you a question. If awareness is Vipassana, in the profound treasury, when Trungpa Rinpoche defines Vipassana as egoless insight, which he does at least twice, maybe three times, how does that reconcile with your statement that awareness is Vipassana? There's nothing that, ego. Ego doesn't necessarily reside in awareness, does it? Are you saying that awareness is, by definition, uh, egoless? It seems to be. Yeah, it's choiceless. But can't we be aware of our ego? Yeah, we can. But it, but uh, uh, that doesn't mean the awareness is where the ego resides. I, I didn't say that was where the ego resides. I, I wouldn't say the ego resides anywhere because there is yeah, no exactly. But it's awareness that susses, susses out when we when when we're feeling it. But awareness is a vague term. It can you can be aware of uh, you know things that upon which you project a sense of self, right? But directed, I, step, I separate. 
I separate choiceless awareness from regular awareness. I think there's a difference there. And the choiceless is the egoless because you're not separating subject object. You're just being aware without choosing. <laughs> but how but do, I, I'm still struggling to, how do you, how do you guys understand those things in relation to Trungpa Rinpoche giving the definition of Vipassana is egoless insight. Well, I totally came up with that on my own, kind of before <laughs> I got into the Buddhism. I was like, oh, I'm choicelessly being aware. I'm just being well, here. Well, the choiceless insight as Vipassana, that's, that's enlightenment. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the fruition. I was right? Cynthia. Cynthia. A path quality, possibly, that while the ultimately the egoless insight, Vipassana is is when you actually fully realize first Bhumi or whatever you want to, whichever Bhumi you want to pick there. But the, from a teaching perspective, there's a path quality. And so you we talk about Vipassana even before it's that fully ultimate version, perhaps. Right. I mean, it, like, like, uh, like uh, the Buddha nature, it doesn't just pop out all of a sudden. The, the vase gets cracks in it for, at first. Right? The gotra is, is revealed. Eric, do you have an answer or are you just looking for other people's thoughts on it? Do you have a sense of that answer yourself? Oh, I think they're totally different things. I think awareness is Samprajanya, Sheshen. The, the term that Alan is translated as introspection and Amelia is translating as alertness, and that vipassana is is very different from awareness. But as and you that, said, I mean, awareness is like snow. You know, for the uh, um, Eskimos, they have you know many many words for it, and we only have one, and so that word is kind of used for every you know many many different aspects of mind or you know many different experiences and so i think it's yeah. it's kind the of trans- hard to say the translation committee when they when i asked them what did rimshe consider the tibetan for awareness to be uh-huh what was it rigpa rigpa i was going to say that's probably rigpa <laughs> sure and that's true if from a from a point of view that's where I tend to put it too. But I think given the current utilizations in the world where people are using it all the way from mindfulness through Rigpa, it's a little hard to say it is just this. I think it's a language problem though. But, but we have a context here where we're talking about moments of introspection. We're talking about, we have a context where we, it seems like we're so clearly talking about a moment of, perception, a moment of straying mindfulness, and then hopefully eventually, before we die and get old, some kind of moment of introspection, which notices that. And <laughs> I mean, I admit that we do have mindfulness awareness, which is what we've been talking about today. And then we have awareness rikpa. But I feel like the context is pretty clear. No? I agree. I mean, Am I just I'm being fine. like man on the street? Like this is just shaken, <laughs> noticing that the mind is strayed? Yes, totally. It did remind me of the third foundation of mindfulness. Dictionary. 
where we define the terminology as we're going to use it in this context and say, okay, let's use alertness for this, et cetera. I mean, you know. Yeah. Well, it helps if, if we, uh, if we agree on or understand or know what the, the Sanskrit is, is that it's being translated mm -hmm. in, in each, in each circumstance. And as Eric said, it's very much like the way Rimshe presents the third foundation of mindfulness, which instead of mindfulness of mind, he calls mindfulness of effort, effort. which is sort of no effort. Well, there is effort, but it's not the effort of making introspection happen. Yeah, he's, he, he then talks about there's two types of effort. There's like spontaneous or instantaneous effort, and then there's effort like longer term sustained effort. And that this is the, the spontaneous effortless sort of effort. He also calls it energy in one, in one place, in some places. I was, I was actually, the image that came to mind reading this here was um, of, a, a, of me being at the tiller of a sailboat and just being able to manage that tiller and you're sort of navigating the, you know, the, the waves of your excited mind or calm ocean you're trying to just uh, hold on to that tiller so it doesn't uh, just go wild. You know? that was That's a nice one. Image. Don't you have you have the 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 till the tiller? What is it? The rudder, right? Yeah, I guess I'm not a sailor, so <laughs> but somehow it just came to mind. You have the you have the rudder, and then you have the the jib the That's the. True. Yeah. The rope that holds the little yeah. mast, right? You have the sheet. You have the sheet that's holding uh, the boom. And, yeah. and you have to feel the wind and yeah. respond to it by letting the sheet out or pulling it in, you know. Right. And that's very similar to the introspection because you're anticipating yeah. where, that, where the wind is changing, right? Right. As and it's happening or in advance. And, and you're trying to head into it on a certain angle. So it's all about responding to the feel effortlessly and immediately. But it's a good analogy because the rudder yeah. is sort of a constant, just like mindfulness is like a constant. Yeah. But the holding the sheet is more like uh, sporadic. Yeah. You know? In, in a certain until you have to come about <laughs> <laughs> anyway I think we've beaten this to a pulp so we still have yet to come back to uh, on the uh, the section on Padma Sambhava in uh, the uh, taboo, taboo of uh, subjectivity so I'm not going to lose sight of that so we didn't go over that reading, so we'll come back to that in a future class because I think uh, it'll there'll be a, a number of other places where he goes through that. We can go through them all in one shebang. Any other final comments or questions, suggestions, announcements? Anything exciting happening in the in our world of Buddhism?
Did anyone watch the movie on Trala Grimshire? Yes. I missed it. How was it? Um, it's good. I think um, it's probably best for people who already, you know, were familiar with him. Although, you know, my daughter watched it and she found it interesting, but, you know, had a different experience of it since she didn't have, um, you know, as much direct experience. Um, but anyway, I thought it was it was lovely, um, lovely to see uh, Talib Kondro, also a very wonderful person. Yeah. For me, not knowing him, I mean, it was interesting. I got a sense of who he was, but after a while with the music interludes, I stopped watching it because <laughs> I'm like, okay, I don't really know him. And so, yeah, it, it had these long music sections, like <laughs> flags waving and... But, I liked yeah. the music. I thought the music was wonderful. Yeah, no, it was good, good choices in music, but he he was really into music. I mean, he liked yeah. the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you know, he had a wide and eclectic um, interest in music. So, I think that was somewhat reflected there. The Red Hot Chili Peppers. Absolutely. One person I know seriously. One person who was a student of his said that the, what gave her confidence to have him as her teacher was that. <laughs> Go figure. That's great. <laughs> Ad Rock from the Beastie Boys was a Buddhist. <laughs> By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the region's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. And did did you send the Tonglen link to everybody? Is everyone familiar with the the Tonglen practice for Ukraine going on every day? Uh, send it around. Okay, it's uh, eleven o'clock Eastern daily. Yeah. Kambala sent out a notice, and so did Shambhala online. Yeah, it's yeah. It, you can find it on Shambhala online, um, but I can I'll find the link and and send it to your list if you'd like. Right. 11 o'clock, I believe it happens. Yeah. And there's a couple of, some of the Ukrainian Sangha join and talk up a little bit about mm -hmm. their perspective. And do they offer Thank Ukrainian? You. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.